Welcome to Head to Toe, stories from the history and future of healthcare. Hello, good morning. It is the AM hours of December 31st, 2017, New Year's Eve. I love New Year's. I love it. I am already getting ready for tonight, but on to the reason you're listening to this podcast. Welcome to the second annual installment of Best Stories 2017. Last year's episode was one of my favorites, so I decided to reprise it at the end of the year. So this is one of two Best Stories episodes. Yes, episodes, plural. I had an astounding amount of interest in contributing to this year's episode, so thank you everyone who participated. I recorded conversations with 14 amazing healthcare workers and split the show into two themed episodes for easy listening. And because we're all busy and don't have time for a 90-minute podcast. So... This episode you are currently listening to is called Best Stories 2017, Making a Difference. In this version, we get to hear seven healthcare professionals talk about their best work of the year, from starting a podcast to speaking at the Smithsonian, to opening a new hospital unit, to launching a national foundation, to working with future doctors and building hospitals. These people really, truly seized the moment in 2017, and I hope their stories are as motivating to you as they are to me. All of their contact information and links to more of their work is in the show notes for reference, so please check that out for more info. And without further delay, here is Best Stories 2017, Making a Difference. Enjoy. Thank you so much for having me. My name is Dr. Tiffany Kelly, and I am a nurse that has turned entrepreneur. My background started in pediatrics and then very quickly transitioned into the field of informatics and over a series of progressive steps in my career. I ended up uh, pursuing a doctoral degree at Duke University where I studied how nurses use information to care for patients. And um, as a result of that effort, I I really stumbled upon something that was an indirect, unexpected finding that wasn't tied to my research, but just something I, I observed that nurses really are in need of a mobile solution to help support their day-to-day care delivery in the world of um, electronic health records. And I had studied the meaning of knowing the patient as a concept, but then quickly realized that um, by leveraging available technology today that we have, such as smartphones, and really looking at how we can present information more meaningfully to nurses in a mobile way so that they can be more focused on the patient. Um, We could really provide them with a a better solution to their their day-to-day needs rather than relying on their scrap pieces of paper and report sheets and or writing on paper towels. And this was how uh, the mobile application Know My Patient was created or designed or the idea for it came about in thinking about how to best serve the nursing population and their patients I decided to take that take that idea for the mobile application, build it out, and develop a company around it, which is Nightingale Apps. And so um, we're really excited to see what 2018 will bring so that we can continue to work to get Know My Patient into the hands of other nurses. So one of the highlights of the past year was I was invited to speak on a panel at the Smithsonian um, in March, and it it came out of the blue. I I never would have suspected being asked to participate, but it was at the National M- Museum of American History at the Lemelson Center for the Study of Innovation and Invention, 
and it was entitled Innovative Labs Dialogue on Healthcare Innovation. And so it was myself and Anna Young, who's the co-founder of Maker Health and Maker Nurse, and then moderated by Susanna Fox, who is the former uh, CTO for the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. And we had um, probably about 80 to 100 people in the audience really interested in hearing about like what made us go down these paths of um, entrepreneurship and innovation and our, and our creation, and how can we best support other nurses and healthcare professionals to start thinking this way and really encourage at the bedside being able to really look at the workarounds that they're solving day to day and turn them into something that could be a scalable solution for a larger audience. The conversation was probably about an hour, but it was just such a great opportunity to be in the Smithsonian, to be able to be speaking with these other amazing individuals whom I had not met before. And it was really, um, you know, probably, I mean, it definitely was a highlight of, of my year in the sense of really being recognized for efforts I'm making on a day-to-day basis, but also being able to offer that experience to others that might be interested and just really aren't sure how to get started. So my name is Dr. Carrie Sue Halsey, and I'm a clinical nurse specialist. I work at St. Luke's Health System in Idaho. I work in the Center for Nursing Excellence, which is a unique department that focuses on nursing practice. Uh, my favorite story of this year involves a newer concept care model for the perinatal population. And so in Nampa, which is a town a little outside of Boise, we just opened a new hospital and we have a very unique care model that doesn't separate NICU patients from their mothers. If a mother comes in in labor and there's going to be either a planned or unplanned NICU admission, that NICU baby will stay in the same room as the mom. So the whole care suite is developed so there can be ongoing NICU care right along with the postpartum mother. And so it's really wonderful. And there's a big space for um, the family too. So the rooms are super huge. After mom is discharged from her postpartum care, she can continue to room in with her NICU baby until the NICU baby is discharged. So my very favorite story um, from this year is we got to see this in action finally after months of preparing and building the unit and opening the hospital and we had our very first NICU baby. Watching one nurse taking care of both the NICU baby and the postpartum mother and having them in the same room and then eventually um, mom being discharged but staying with the NICU baby until the baby's discharged. It was just amazing. It was so rewarding for the whole team to see that care model in action and see it how we had envisioned. St. Luke's is only the fifth hospital in the United States to adopt this care model. So it's really cutting edge and we're really excited about it. And it's so nice to have them labor, deliver, recover, and then stay with their NICU baby in the same room. It's just amazing. So that's my favorite story. Hi, my name is Kim Byzantine. I am currently a nurse in Detroit, Michigan area. I work as a surgical trauma nurse. I think my most significant nursing story for 2017, this is actually an ongoing nursing story, and it's part of the reason that I became a nurse. 
I'm a, I'm a newer nurse. I've been a nurse since 2014 is when I graduated with my BSN. It was a second degree. Um, I spent 20 years as a global engineering manager in the automotive industry. In 2011, I reconnected with several friends on Facebook. I grew up in the St. Louis area, and we discovered that all of our friends and family were sick from these really rare cancers. I myself lost my oldest child to a glioblastoma multiform that he was born with, which is very rare. It's especially to be congenital for a child is typically found in 60-year-old men. I helped found a group in the St. Louis area um, investigating our cancer cluster. From 2011 until present day, um, we have determined that we have a cancer cluster in the area. Um, we did determine the source. We found out that St. Louis processed all the uranium for the Manhattan Project and dumped it in the fields north of the city, which at the time were unpopulated. We grew up in that area in the 60s and 70s and were chronically exposed to ionizing radiation. And today, our community um, and our childhood friends are experiencing significantly higher than normal rates of cancer. It became my passion. I went back to school. I resigned from a very lucrative career because I wanted to know, I wanted to understand the healthcare process better. So I became a nurse. I am working on my toward my doctorate so that I can contribute to the research that's being done on this cancer cluster in my area. We have our community that I lead. We have engaged the CDC. We are actively pursuing a public health assessment with the division of the CDC called the Agency for Toxic Substance and Disease Registry, or ATSDR. And so what we're finding is that many what could have been curable cancers are going undiagnosed until they are in the terminal stage. I actively work with multiple federal agencies, including the St. Louis County Health Department, um, the Department of Health and Senior Services, the CDC, the ATSDR, and a division of the Army Corps of Engineers responsible for cleaning up Manhattan Project waste in communities once our public health assessment is completed to pursue legislation to be included in a federal program for radiation exposure victims within the U.S. There's already a federally funded program called the Radiation Exposure Compensation Act. We expect that to be done in the next year. So for 2017, that is a huge accomplishment for us to have this public health study done. What they were studying is, was there a sufficient mode for this contamination to have harmed the community? We fully expect the epidemiologist to confirm the exposure. Um, another cancer that we identified was appendix cancer. The chances of having appendix cancer are one in 200,000. We have over 50 in a five-mile radius of our hometown. And this confirmation, while it won't tell us that one person was, you know, we know without a doubt this one person, this cancer is caused by this. The fact that they'll, they'll confirm the exposure pathways opens they're the gatekeepers that opens all the doors for us to federally legislate for inclusion in this Radiation Exposure Compensation Act. We can't move forward 
to help the community receive restitution until this public health assessment is done. So for 2017, the biggest accomplishment is the health assessment. What I want to say is we are not the only site in the U.S. We are one of 22. You know, so so to me, that advocation goes beyond my own site is that folks need to kind of take a look around. And on on a national level, the EPA puts out something called the National Priorities List. Anybody can Google it and understand what kind of environmental concerns are in your backyard. Secondly, if anybody wants to see our story and how we did it, so we have a Facebook page, which is Coldwater Creek Just thefactspleasecom And then our Facebook page is Coldwater Creek Fact with an S.com. And then they can kind of see what happened to our community and realize how it could happen to any community out there. Hi, so my name is Yunsi Dursa and I'm an emergency nurse. I live and work in New York City. So my biggest story in 2017 is I I launched a podcast and a blog on emergency nursing. So I'm the podcast host of Recess Nurse podcast and blog. It was launched in June 2017. I did it because I felt that information on how to treat our really sick patients in the emergency department just needs to be out there. It's hard to find this information. Even if you have years of experience as an emergency nurse, for example, you may not see a triple A, an abdominal, uh, aortic abdominal. Wait, having a brain. I'm having a brain fart. (laughs) (laughs) Triple A, we know what you mean. Um, an abdominal aortic aneurysm, and that may not be an, a daily occurrence. Uh, so how do you treat that? Your hospital is a community hospital and you don't get as many post cardiac arrests, uh, because they get diverted to a nearby trauma center. Maybe your hospital does not, uh, create a protocol for treating DKA. And I know with the doctors, they get a lot of free information uh, that you can just search online and you can you can search for treatment plans and that kind of thing. But there's nothing for nursing, nothing for emergency nursing. You can have many smart doctors in your facility, but us nurses, we're the ones that are actually going to deliver the care. We're the ones that are going to deliver the medication perform all of your interventions. And then also we're the ones that are at the bedside. We're the ones that are assessing, reassessing and, and making recommendations. And so that's, that's how I started this podcast. Uh, so it happened in June and I've gotten pretty positive feedback so far. It's now an international podcast, which wasn't expecting. Uh, and I'm just going to keep trucking along. Uh, so I, I'm interviewing, uh, doctors. I'm hoping to interview some pharmacists, uh, other nurses, and just try to have some sort of a comprehensive library, I think. at the, the I think that's my end goal, is to have some sort of a comprehensive library on how to treat patients. So if you don't know how to use, let's say, a push-dose presser, because you don't have time, there's like a, a gap in time before you can hang a vasopressor drip on a patient who's extremely hypotensive. Uh, maybe their MAP is in the 40s. Uh, you're going to have to start a vasopressor, but... You know, there can be issues uh, on getting this vasopressor drip and it may be faster to just inject a little bit of a push dose presser to bridge that gap. Um, and that, that can make a difference in someone's, uh, your patient's morbidity, 
uh, mortality, neural function when they wake up, if they wake up. And so that that's the difference. That's the kind of critical care education that I'm providing for free online. So you can go to recessnurse.com. The so recess as in R-E-S-U-S, nurse, N-U-R-S-E.com. From going from your clinical practice to go ahead and starting something completely different. How did that make you feel? Um, are we allowed to swear? Uh, <laughs> scary as hell. Putting myself out there. You know, I, I don't have 10, 20 years of experience as an emergency nurse. However, when I first started working, I went straight to the emergency department. I went straight to a level one trauma center. What I've seen in my clinical practice is that patients are coming in much sicker many, many, many comorbidities. And it, it, it's it's just not a straightforward treatment plan anymore. Um, so I think that to bridge the knowledge gap of what you learn in nursing school to the actual clinical practice that's needed, it's a lot. I know I, I'm still studying. I'm still um, pushing myself to learn, you know, what's the latest and whether the latest is the greatest or not. I think it's important to know uh, what's going on and, and to question some of the treatment um, or to make suggestions for treatment because you recognize something at the bedside. My name is Angela Simpson. I'm the founder and national director for Silent No More Foundation. I live in Maryland and I am a registered nurse. I've always had um, a particular interest in healthcare workplace violence because it's so common. Did you hear about the nurse, the nurses who had been taken hostage at Delmore Hospital? So basically, this is where Silent No More was born. Basically, the way it started, there was an inmate who had been in the hospital for a few days, and the inmate was able to retrieve his weapon. He left hostage number one, and he grabbed hostage number two and took her to an elevator and went to a different area of the hospital where he locked himself, he barricaded himself and her into a room, and he raped and assaulted her for the period of a few hours. It was the absolute literal definition of torture, what she went through. So this story, when it came out, I remember just, you know, being on my iPad, I was watching a live video with, you know, a couple thousand of my best friends on the internet, and the hashtag silent no more came up during this video and conversation and everybody was just basically feeling really empowered to just rally around these nurses and I'm an action person if some I'm not a person who waits for somebody else to see the moment and do things I want to do it because I don't want to wait for somebody else to come around to it so really just swept up in this emotional moment, I started this group. And the group was originally called Delnor's Law because we were talking about fighting for legal protections for healthcare workers. So like I said, the group started off as Delnor's Law, but that, I mean, over time, our name kind of morphed into what it is today. But I started this group and literally overnight, I got 1,200 members. And I brought in a couple of friends to help me with the moderation of it. But when I woke up that next morning and saw how many members there were waiting to get into this group and how many members were in it and they were active and they were engaged, I just realized 
I have this moment right here in my hand. I have this moment and it's up to me what I do with it. I can eat this group where everybody just complains and talks about how bad it is or I can really fix this problem. I can really, I can harness this energy and I can, I can use it for good. And, you know, I'm just one small person here in Maryland, but with all these people and, you know, by the end of that week, we had probably 3000 people with all of these people, we can really do something. And I did, and we did, and, you know, we really got our start there. Going from a Facebook group to an actual organization, that took weeks for me to really get the courage to do that. The day that the group was formed was June 5th, and I filed incorporation paperwork and got the approval for that on July 14th. You know, the energy and the passion of the people in this group, it's up to 7,600 people now, I think. And we've got a unique following on our other social media accounts. So it's a pretty sizable group, and we've been making a bunch of noise. And the whole idea is that because this really is part of the culture and healthcare, and it's not just nurses, it's doctors, it's CNA, it's respiratory therapists, everybody. And it's not just in the hospital, it's in home health and outpatients. We really have just created this momentum to be silent no more. The culture has to change and we can't be complicit in what it is that's happening. But nothing's going to change if we keep this our dirty little secret, you know? And if you would like any more information about us and what we're doing, you can find us on the web at silentnomorefoundation.com or you can join the conversation on Facebook in the group called Healthcare Workers Protection Act or you can check out our Facebook page, which is Silent No More Foundation. My name is uh, Dr. Ken Waxman and I live in Santa Barbara, California. I'm a retired general surgeon. I, I had a long career taking care of patients and um, developing trauma centers and doing research and teaching residents. So I was very fortunate to have a very rewarding clinical career. And then about five years ago, I, I pursued something I always wanted to do, which was to work with, with Doctors Without Borders. So I left clinical medicine slowly, but finally completely, and then uh, had uh, had a wonderful experience working in Africa and South Sudan as a surgeon with Doctors Without Borders. I think that shaped my current work, which is working with South Sudanese students to try to help them get a medical education through a nonprofit that we started because there's just a terrible shortage of doctors in South Sudan and their healthcare future depends on having South Sudanese doctors. And then I also do international work working in dozens of countries, helping hospitals obtain international accreditation for quality and safety. So I've kept very busy. I want to share just a story that I think is important in terms of the future of international medicine. It's sort of an administrative story, but I think it's worth telling. And it has to do with visiting a hospital in Bangladesh. 
Bangladesh, as most people think of it, is a very poor country and has had just terrible health care forever. And there really was not a, a way forward until an Indian company named Apollo used a model they had developed in India, which was to, to go into the poorest part of a country, a poorest region, which was terribly healthcare underserved, has a lot of poverty, and put a, a, a for-profit hospital um, that's high quality and delivers good services. And the idea is, in every part of the world where there's poor people, there's also a, a subset of the population who actually does have resources. They have, they may be wealthy, they may have health insurance, they may be international health workers or human aid workers who have the support of sponsoring organizations. But there's a lot of people who can't afford health care. And in many parts of the world, these people have to leave the region and go to another country usually to get their health care. So the Indian model has been, if you build a very good hospital, people will stay locally get their health care. This will support the hospital. And now you have a quality hospital to take care of the community. And that's what happened in Bangladesh. One good private hospital was developed. It was a tertiary teaching hospital. And it has really transformed healthcare in Dhaka, which is the capital of Bangladesh, because other hospitals also emulate that and want to reach the same quality. And with that, we've sort of been thinking of how can we apply that model to other very terrible, terribly underserved areas. And so we have a plan in South Sudan to do a similar thing and are looking currently for partners and sort of have a, a game plan to develop a, a world-class tertiary care hospital in South Sudan. And we think that when the time is right, that will lead a new healthcare revolution in that country, which has currently some of the worst health care in the world. What I'm most proud of is helping healthcare leaders in South Sudan to develop a vision as a way forward. And I think if you know the, the politics in South Sudan are currently so bad that nothing can move forward. But when the time is right, that I think would be uh, I'd be extremely proud of our vision and our plans um, can lead to improvements in that country eventually. Our website is www.futuredoctors.org, and it's got um, information about our nonprofit and how we're um, currently helping as many South Sudanese students go to medical school as possible. So that's my story. All right, so my name's Jim Rickards. I'm a radiologist. I'm currently the senior medical director for Moda Health in charge of population direct uh, population health and delivery system collaboration. And my best uh, healthcare-related story for 2017 it really is around our coordinated care organizations in Oregon and the success we've had with the coordinated care model and our Medicaid population. I recently published a book called Our Health Plan, Community-Governed Healthcare That Works that really provides a, a good story on how one community, Yamhill County, came together and started a CCO. Um, I talk about my efforts in, in helping uh, lead the startup with a number of other community leaders. Um, this 
started about five years ago, but I recently put the book out uh, this year. It was published in August of 2017. Um, and so I, I think for me to see the continued success of the coordinated care organizations and then be able to tell the story of how one of these organizations came to being um, in the book I just noted has been particularly exciting. What, what I'm most proud of about the, the book, Our Health Plan, Community Government Healthcare That Works and the CCO model in Oregon is, is the fact that you know, it, the CCOs have really provided this platform for communities to come together and develop a true mission and vision for what they want to see uh, in terms of population health in their communities. You know, before we had the CCOs, our, our healthcare system had been pretty siloed, especially in the Medicaid space. We had a lot of you know, physicians and hospitals and, and different parts of the healthcare system all trying to do their, their best to improve the health of individuals, but they didn't have a way to all kind of come together and collaborate. Because, you know, when we look at what goes into making us healthy, only about 10% of our health is determined by the medical care we receive. The vast majority of our health is determined by other things like our behavior, our socioeconomic status, our access to transportation and healthy food, our peer groups. And so as a physician, I've always had very limited ability to impact that other 90% of what goes into making us healthy. And really the CCO model, it allows physicians, but also other people involved in healthcare, so public health workers, social workers, behavioral health providers, dentists, really who provide that other 90% of what goes into making us healthy, the CCOs allow them to come together into one organization, identify opportunities for improvement, provides funding to develop programs to then make real improvements, and then has actual measurements that track performance of the organizations over time. So I, I think our CCOs have been successful in, in bringing together all those various providers in the healthcare space. And over the five years they've been in existence, they, they've proved their worth. So over the five years, we've seen a, a control in spending, annual cost increases have only gone up 3.4% a year for the CCOs. We've met a number of quality metrics, and it's really been meeting those quality metrics that have resulted in the cost savings, not so much decreasing what we pay for healthcare, but improving the quality of care and improving the coordination of care that's resulted in the savings. You know, an example of that would be now more than 90% of all of our Medicaid members in the state of Oregon are enrolled in a recognized medical home, a so-called patient-centered primary care home. And these medical homes have been shown to be successful in providing more collaborative, coordinated care. They provide for uh, integrated physical and behavioral health care. They provide for increased access to members. And with that, they've generated cost savings. And so I think a, a big focus on the CCO model and supporting primary care and medical homes has led to their success and help control costs. So I'm just hopeful that folks elsewhere in the nation will look to Oregon as a leader and its CCO model and perhaps adopt uh, elements of that model in their own states. And there you have it, Best Stories 2017. Thank you so much for listening to the Making a Difference version. Thank you to my amazing guests, Dr. Jim Rickards at Moda Health, Dr. Tiffany Kelly with Nightingale Apps, Dr. Ken Waxman with FutureDoctors.org, Dr. Carrie Sue Halsey at St. Luke's Health, Kim Byzantine of Coldwater Creek, Just the Facts, Angela Simpson of the Silent No More Foundation, and my fellow podcaster, Yunsi Dursa at Recess Nurse Podcast. Seriously, you guys in emergency medicine need to check that out. You guys are all incredible and do incredible work. I'm excited to see the things that you do in 2018. Also, don't forget to check out the other Best Stories 2017 episode, All the Feels, 
great stuff there, personal bedside tales from seven other professionals that will make you laugh and cry. Really awesome stuff. Go check it out. 2018 will bring some very cool things for Head to Toe. So if you haven't already, please subscribe to the show on Podbean or iTunes and leave me a rating or comment if you have time. Please go to Facebook and like my Marie McMillan page and you'll be up to date on all the new podcast developments. Please share the links to the show with all your friends and colleagues on social media, as I'm always looking to grow the listener base, so I thank you for your help with that. I wanted to add, if you were listening and wanted to be part of Best Stories, and we weren't able to figure out a time to schedule an interview for whatever reason, fear not. There will be more opportunities to be heard. In 2018, I'm planning on recording conversations in three different categories, extraordinary stories, much like this episode, career profiles, and trending topics. Visit my website, mariemacmillan.com for more info on that. And there you can get yourself on my newsletter list and be among the first to know when a show goes live or there's a call for show guests and so forth. As always, I would love to hear your thoughts on the show. So feel free to comment on social media, shoot me an email at macmillanpages at gmail.com or leave me a voicemail on the podcast feedback line, 503-512-0185. Finally, the music from today's show came from an artist known as Rhombus Rare, a.k.a. Rom. His debut album can be found on YouTube with a sophomore album coming out in 2018. Check the link in the show notes. Thanks for the beats, dude. 2017, it's been real. I'm ready to pop the champagne. I toast to you, listeners, and all the providers working tonight and over the holidays. Thank you for being at the hospitals and clinics to take care of all the sick and injured people. Everyone, have a great night, be safe, stay tuned for more Head to Toe in 2018, and take care.